is uh, Cult Transmission. Uh, today's episode uh, contemplates if it even really is a podcast. <laughs> That's true. What? That was. <laughs> <laughs> that works. I love it. All right. All right. Avoid thinking. Keep repeating to yourself. It's only a movie. This is Cold Transmissions Podcast, where we talk about movies that are cold. With your hosts, Clay Bones, Eric Salazar, Brian Trost, and Patrick Holman. Now, let's talk. So, yeah, hi, uh, this is Clay. You're, you're listening to uh, episode uh, six. I think of uh, cult transmissions. Uh, mm-hmm. Before we dive into the uh, main subject, I guess we should start with uh, what everybody's watching. Uh, so I guess we'll go around. Uh, we're not looking at each other right now, so we'll yeah. just have to go. Uh, Which way? We'll go with uh, alphabetical order here. So Brian Troth, you are up to watching, bud. Um, I watched a interesting film called let the corpses tan it was on my radar for a long time i mm-hmm. kind of forgot about it uh it's by a couple i believe french uh directors helen catet and bruno forzani they did a, a mare in the strange color of your body's tears which i've yet to see either but they've also been on my radar for years but basically it's a crime meets giallo meets spaghetti western it almost mm-hmm. looks like uh hyper stylized like nick winding refn doing like a spaghetti western but the thing is it's not like a period piece western it's modern times and these artists are like kind of holed up in this weird ruins in uh southern france and they have these mysterious guests that one of them brought there it turns out they're criminals and they basically rob an armored truck of a bunch of gold and the cops come there to confront them and it's just an absolute bloodbath shootout awesome awesome fucking movie um i also watched uh, i finally watched color out of space richard stanley's uh h lovecraft adaptation and i definitely have to say it's one of the best lovecraft adaptations that a lot of people think is impossible to do and i feel like uh he nailed it pretty awesome if you're a fan of like the thing or the void or you know any any weird like uh What's the word I'm looking for here? A You're thinking of uh, cosmic horror, cosmic, the, uh... but, but also body horror. But I don't want to just just uh, pigeonhole it to body horror because it's way beyond that. But uh... well, like co- cosmic horror does tend to like have a lot of gross eldritch imagery, and you know, like I don't think anybody does Lovecraft without some slimy, gross tentacle business happening. So yeah, but it 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 genuinely disturbed me. There's some scenes. I'm sure Patrick knows what I'm talking about. But man, it was really fucked up. Really fucked up. But uh, highly yeah. recommended. Highly recommended. You guys, it's on Hoopla streaming. So if you guys are cheap ass like me, you can watch it for free with a library card. But just wanted to throw that out there, but that's pretty much it. Been playing a lot of Zelda. Rest of the wild. Uh, so Easy E, what you been watching? Um, so actually, by uh, 
talking to you today, I watched that uh, Vice documentary series, uh, Dark Side of the Ring, yeah. Uh, yeah. about Chris Benoit, and it is a, a horror story. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, yes, it is insane. Like what what he's done, what he actually did to his family. Like, yeah, we knew he killed his family and stuff, but uh, the way he did it was so messed up and. Oh, that was crazy. Like, oh, yeah. so being quarantined, you know, we I watched a uh, Netflix series, Don't Fuck With Cats, also. Oh, I watched that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty messed up, too. Guy posted a video about killing kittens on YouTube. I'm pretty sure he did it just to get a rise out of people and get attention. Mm-hmm. And it was like escalates and escalates as they put a, <laughs> put a group of people together to try to you know find out who he is and stuff but it just escalates and i mean it's pretty messed up too if you're yeah if it, you're, comes, oh, it goes in a direction you do not see coming either yeah right you, uh, yeah but yeah like if you're we're watching way too uh we're watching too dark of films for being quarantined we need to watch happy uh that's take your I'm mind saying. off the darkness shit but uh we're not gonna do that Hopefully, I don't know, man. Easy E, he might, he might uh, surprise us this uh, tonight. Actually, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I can't wait. Uh, oh yeah, I was gonna say. Hopefully, by the time this episode comes out, we will be at the end of this quarantine. I hope. But I was gonna say, <laughs> if you, we're all still alive, if you're of like fragile mind, I probably wouldn't yeah. watch either one of these <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah, because they're no. pretty heavy. Doc. Uh, I, I'm uh, I'm impressed so far. No one said anything about uh, was it Tiger King? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I watched. Uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure all of us watched it, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nope, it's definitely worth watching. Anyways, uh, <laughs> I guess we're gonna kick it over to uh, to Patrick. Uh, what you watch, Pat? Uh, I watched some oldies but goodies from the '80s. Uh, I watched the 1988 The Nest. It's uh, your classic bug horror about cockroaches. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty, pretty horrible. Um, and then I watched the 1986 classic Highlander. I oh, realized man. that the only time that I think I've ever watched that movie was probably on like USA or something. Yeah, because I was watching it. We've got it on Blu-ray, and I was like, "Nope, I haven't seen this. I haven't seen this." So yeah, it's a good one. I was on a Christopher Lambert tear yesterday because, like, before mm-hmm. that, I actually watched both Mortal Kombat movies. There so. you go. Both. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's that you know, he's Kombat in one of them. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no Lambert in part two of it. It is, it is worth it. Oh, just that's to see the that's bad James Remar. That's yeah. fucking Dexter's yeah. dad. Yeah. Yep. I remember uh, that. All right. So, uh, any other Lambert uh, you were in on uh, that? Right, I just limited time. it to two. Yeah, uh, okay. just two a day. Lame. <laughs> just do a just do a Highlander marathon. Just watch Wait, all. What about Fortress? Actually, we should actually talk about Fortress eventually here. Maybe. All right. I don't so, think I've seen it. You don't. You don't think you've seen Fortress? I don't know. I, don't, I might have. Oh, boy. I think I've seen pieces of it, but I don't think I've seen the whole thing either. 
we we've all probably seen parts of it. I mean, that's like those type of movies, you know, that our dads were probably watching at the time, and yeah. we walk through the room or something. <laughs> yeah, not a, not proud that I have a Stuart Gordon blind spot. So there's a don't part two also. Really? Was that Stuart Gordon? I don't know. I don't think so. It's I don't the remember Christopher Lambert in it though. Yeah. Interesting. This, this is a Lambert praise podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, all right. Uh, well, uh, let's see what I watched. Uh, so far, the only thing that's really coming to mind besides the uh, uh, <laughs> Tiger King here and uh, uh, the Zoller movies, which I think I mentioned briefly in the first episode, which is actually the last most recent thing we recorded. Um <laughs> Hey, no, no. I want, I want him to know. I want to talk about it. It'll be <laughs> no. four weeks. <laughs> uh, no, um, I watched. Uh, I think the first episode of um, "Too Old to Die Young," which is a uh, pretty cool. Uh, at least it seems cool. I, I hear nothing but bad things, but <laughs> it's it's Nick Winding Refn who I adore, and it's also one of my favorite comic book writers, uh, Ed Brubaker, writing the, uh, writing the series. So uh, It starts off, it's a slow burn, like every episode, like 10 episodes, I believe, and they're all nearly feature length. So, uh, yeah, if you're into reffing, it's a whole lot of reffing, so probably check it out. I, I can't recommend it all the way through. I just watched the first episode. But anyways, I guess... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. It's hard to imagine anything Reffin and Brubaker together being bad, but uh, you have those people, critics mostly, well, some fans that shit on anything Reffin does because it's just kind of out there. It's not what they're supposed to. That that is true. I I would take all the... uh... It all with a grain of salt because I mean, just about everything he's done was pretty poorly reviewed by most mainstream reviews. So uh, I, I certainly do have that in mind when watching it. But uh, so far, so good. I don't know. Everybody's a real piece of shit in the movie. And if you want to see Alec Baldwin just completely out of his fucking mind, uh, it's worth it just to see that. Uh, I guess, uh, unless anybody else, anything to add, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to. Uh, we're going to talk some more about some uh, Ghost in the Shell, the uh, 1995 animated feature. What's a simulated experience again? All your memories about your wife and daughter are false. They're like a dream. Someone's taken advantage of you. They were trying to make you ghost hack into some government officials. Do you understand what I'm saying? But that can't be. I had a picture of her. She was there. The truth is, you've never had a wife or kid. Like he said, they aren't real. They're a simulated experience, a fantasy. Are we talking about the Puppet Master, the infamous mystery hacker? We don't know a lot either. No clue about age, sex, or background. All we know for certain is this person is on the international most wanted list for crimes including stock manipulation, illegal information gathering, political engineering, several acts of terrorism, the nickname Puppet Master comes from the ghost hacking. My code name is Project 2501. 
I am a living, thinking entity who was created in the sea of information. a simulated experience or a dream of simultaneous reality and fantasy. The net is vast and infinite. Ghost in the shell. <laughs> uh, so before we, uh, before we take a uh... Yeah, head on dive into Ghost in the Shell. Um, any other uh, sci-fi movies featuring cyborgs or anything you guys want to talk about? I always kind of it's. I mean, it's certainly a staple. Like, there's obviously things like Blade Runner, but anything uh, anything stand out to you as far as the specific genre goes? Uh, I'm not gonna lie, cyborgs terrify me. Like the idea, sure. the idea of them. Like, I sh- I've read too much shit from like. Uh, uh, Stephen Hawking and Bill Gates and all them talking about mm. like that shit isn't that out of you know the realm of possibility like uh, them becoming sentient because I think they did have that one that was learning uh, speech and like it was supposed to learn like English like speech patterns and stuff and then mm-hmm. it started straying off of their study and like learning things it wasn't intended to learn which fucking terrifies me because you have programmers that are literally, you know, relaying stuff to this and, and it's going off course. So either the humans are lying or it's literally fucking learning on its own. So they shut the project down. You can go read about it. I don't remember the name of it, but that kind of shit. But then you watch like the movie Alien. That, that's another mm-hmm. example. That scared me. Because I was like, they're so human-like and they, they just blend right in and then you get a good you know, taste of them being different when he's spewing white milky blood everywhere. That fucking terrified me as a kid. Because he, he looks like, uh, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I'd say Alien was a good one that stuck with me as a kid. Um, as far as recent ones, Ex Machina is really fucking good. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, Ex, Ma- Ex Machina is real, real decent. Uh, I'm sure there's a billion, but, I mean, there's a lot of shitty ones, too. Uh, I won't name names, but uh, Will Smith's in some of them. <laughs> I Robot does suck. Uh, that that's certainly it's well, that's worth just saying out loud. It's a terrible movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Easy E, Patrick. Anything? Does uh, RoboCop count? Absolutely, <laughs> Robo. In fact, All RoboCop right, there you is go. the cyborgiest cyborg because he is in fact part human. I, that's what I was gonna. I was gonna say like it's tough to it's tough to actually think about right because like you're like okay so what do we what are we defining as a cyborg uh, you know is it just an android or is it something that you know used to be human and then is now more machine than man yeah I don't know I just, well there's a name for that is there what's that there's not a name for like RoboCop it's like a half human half cyborg right I mean that that is I always thought what a cyborg was that's yeah. what I thought. <laughs> Uh, I thought Cyborg was just another name for, like, Android, but maybe you're right. Those are Androids, bruh. Yeah, Android Cyborgs. I always think of the Borgs from Star Trek. Shit, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, what about Robin Williams' Bicentennial, man? 
Yeah, I and guess. This is more of a robot. May he rest in peace. God, that was a really cre- crazy costume, too. Like, it was oh, shit. genuinely creepy. Yeah. Speaking of Richard Stanley, fucking hardware. That is a great yeah. one. Dang sure. it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Man, hey, we need to watch that again at some point. That's a, <laughs> that's a perfect movie for this show. Um, yeah, that's interesting. There's There's a lot of good ones you just kind of forget about. Yeah, uh, I was, you know, also this this movie dealing a lot with, uh, you know, just cyberpunk in general. Like the one thing you always go back to is Blade Runner. Uh, so shout out to those two films uh, before we take a full on head on dive in. But I guess if we're ready to go, we're ready to go. Today we're talking about Ghost in the Shell. Uh, it's a nearly ubiquitous uh, franchise, uh, but. Almost everybody's seen it in some form, but uh, it we're talking specifically about the 1995 theatrical film. So it was released in October of 95 in Japan, didn't make it here in the States till June of 1996, when I believe it was released by Manga Entertainment. It's directed by, uh, I'm going to butcher all these names, so my apologies, it's directed by uh, Mamoru Oshii, uh, written by Kazunori Ito. These two guys have paired up quite a bit in the past. The music's by uh, Kinji Kawaii, and it was animated by the powerhouse production IG. Uh, as far as animation is concerned, they are up there. Uh, just a lot of things you can name off the top of your head was probably these guys. Uh Notably, the uh, Kill Bill anime sequence uh, from Kill Bill Volume 1 was uh, these dudes. So I'm super familiar talented. with that anime. What's that? I'm familiar with that anime. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it was based on a manga by Masamune Shiro, uh, which just, just, just don't Google image search that. Without the safe filter on, because Jesus, the guy certainly had his moments, particularly in the 90s, when he was doing a lot of really cool cyberpunk manga. He goes on, though, to do almost exclusively porn uh, these days, and it is not fun to look at. (laughs) (laughs) The movie does stray quite a bit from the manga Momoro Oshii, it's been said on several times that he just straight up took a hatchet to the manga. It, it does change the tone quite a bit. It, it does retain a lot of the characters, but with very different kind of personalities there. He just it took out all the porn? <laughs> yeah, he, well, he took out all the porn, but there's quite a lot of boobs in this movie. Uh, it had a very large budget of, I believe, the last animated feature we talked about from... Uh, 80s uh here i had a similarly big budget but of uh the japanese equivalent of 10 million dollars so quite a bit it bombed in the box office initially but it did well enough on video in the u.s and europe and even japan to where it eventually grossed up to 43 million dollars all right so before we get i'm sorry go ahead <laughs> nope, that was just me. <laughs> <laughs> we, that is there. There's a no, you're good. 
All right, so before we take in uh, the whole movie, let's talk a little bit about Momoro Oshii. Uh, he was born August 19th, 1951. Went to college at, oh shit, this is going to be tough. Tokyo uh, Gakugei University. I'm sorry, that's what? not how you say that. But <laughs> As a student, he was influenced uh, a lot by European cinema. He said he was influenced by his dad. Uh, his dad, who happened to just be a cinephile. Graduated in 1976, and in 1977, he immediately gets a job at Tatsunoku Productions, working primarily as a storyboard, oh, storyboard artist. <laughs> <laughs> in the 80s, he goes on to move on to Studio Puro, or I don't know how to Pure say that. Pure it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he go, he, there, he directed both the... Uh, Yurusei Yatsura a TV series and two Yurusei Yatsura films. These are film or uh, it's based on, I believe, a manga by I believe it's uh, the uh, Rumiko uh, Takahashi, who is uh, she's primarily known stateside for her work uh, Ranma One Half and Inuyasha. Uh, pretty pretty popular uh, creator. The film goes on to, uh, at least rather the second film, uh, would go on to... Uh... Oh, shit. I just spilled a drink on me. You're good. <laughs> the film would go on to uh, kind of show some of his, Momoroshi's uh, trademark style being very kind of uh, surreal at times. Uh, let's see. Where are we at then? He goes then on to work independently on uh, Dallas, which happens to be the very first OVA or original animation video. Uh, essentially, it's just a direct-to-video anime. Uh, from what I read, this is the very first one, and this is one of the most popular forms of getting animation out there. So, nice. good for him. Cool. He... Uh, Let's see, he then uh, he then goes on to Studio Dean, where he writes and directs Angel Egg, uh, working with the legendary fantasy, Final Fantasy and Vampire Hunter D character designer uh, Yoshitaka Amano. Uh, so that's that's pretty uh, pretty yeah. interesting. Uh, Toshio Suzuki, the uh, producer for Angel's Egg, went on to found a studio. Uh, maybe you guys have heard of it. Uh, called Studio Ghibli with uh, Hayao Miyazaki and Isao Takahata. Uh, Momoro Oshii briefly collaborated with the two uh, on a film that didn't end up getting made that was going to be called Anchor, but it fell apart due to creative differences. And this seems to actually kind of... Uh, it seems to be a little bit of heat between Oshii and uh, specifically Miyazaki, uh, primarily over the way Miyazaki seems to treat his, uh, his workers. Uh, and yeah, Oshi moves around a lot. So, uh, this is all just covering up his work to Ghost in the Shell. So <laughs> in the late eighties, <laughs> he goes on to, uh, he's recruited to join a kind of artistic collective called Headgear, which is mostly manga artists and writers, uh, trying to get together to create a property or properties that, you know, have clout because it's just like, look at all these cool creators working on this thing. There he goes on to with um, 
with, I believe, Kazunori Ito to uh, create uh, the Pat Labor uh, TV series and the first two films. In between doing the Pat Labor TV series and the, uh, I believe it's the uh, first film, he does uh, two live-action films, uh, Red Spectacles in 1987 and Stray Dogs, Kerberos, Panzer Cops in 91. It's a part of uh, an apparently ongoing Kerberos saga. Haven't watched any of them, so I can <laughs> tell you. Uh, finally, before Ghost in the Shell, he goes on to do uh, a live-action film called Talking Head, which is, I guess, him, like... Uh, sort of his statement on filmmaking. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Oshi has stated that his movies uh, contradict or contrast what he calls the Hollywood formula, which is his films prioritize visuals followed by story and finally characters. Don't know what that means, but whatever. <laughs> <dude>. <laughs> All right. So we're going to take a quick break. And after that, we're going to uh, cut this movie down. Chop, chop. it up. Chop and screwed. All right, we're back, and uh, we're going to talk about Ghost in the Shell some. And essentially, I just mean we're going to literally chop this movie up into bits, and you guys can tell me what you thought. Uh, before we get started, has anyone even seen this movie before just now? Any having you like any yes. like fond memories of the film or anything? No. Nope. Yes. And f- this one was fresher on my memory than Akira. So yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of a nice companion piece to go with Akira. It even has some credits shared between the two. So. Yeah. We're yeah, just I the only cool the ones, I guess. <laughs> for now, I, I'm going to turn yeah. everybody on this podcast into as big of a nerd for this kind of shit as I am. <laughs> uh, uh, probably not true, but we're going to try, goddammit. <laughs> Like I think the first time I watched this, my cousin was working at a video store, and she t- like they found out that I was into anime, and uh, she was like, "Have you seen Ghost in the Shell?" Because my video store actually has it, and I was like, "Oh shit, okay, cool." So ended up going to my cool cousin's video store, uh, Aardvark Video, yeah, in Wasso, Oklahoma. Those <laughs> were yeah, went there and rented it, and I was much too young to see what the contents of the film, but I was too far gone at that point anyways, so. Uh, yeah, I guess with that, we'll uh, we'll jump right in with a recap. Uh, we're going to go point to point here, so anything that you guys hear that you're like, fuck yeah, that was awesome, let's... Uh, Let's do it. Um, Before the movie even starts, though, we do need to set some groundwork here because the movie does an okay enough job at it, but uh, the movie's set in 2029, which doesn't seem that far off right now, in what is apparently called Newport City, Japan. Uh, That's really it, actually. Uh, Ghosts are souls, so hats off to the guys who figured that shit out. Just kidding. Uh, The movie starts off... Oh, uh, the movie starts off with a... uh, one of those uh, those uh, title cards where it's like, in the not-so-distant future, when the corporate networks fill the earth with electronic and optical communication lines, but society has not been too computerized to erase nations and races. All right, so we open up then with uh, 
uh, pretty much the main character of the film, Major Motoko Kusanagi, and the rest of what we learned to be Section 9, eavesdropping on men talking in secret about a mysterious project that they refer to in passing as Project 2501. This guy appears to be an engineer of the project who wants to defect to another country. Section 6, who is another part of the Japanese uh, law enforcement arm, uh, moves in to apprehend the engineer, but the deal with the foreign diplomat is already done, right? So the guy says, I can't remember, so he's already got diplomatic immunity. My country's allowed to offer this to anybody. Uh, so yeah, it's already done, diplomatic immunity. It turns out Section 9 doesn't give too much of a shit about that because the next thing you know, you hear a gunshot and you see a man's robot head explode. Uh, which is actually pretty awesome. <laughs> Matoko then uh, vanishes uh, with some badass predator camouflage. That opening of that scene, that whole opening, uh, is actually pretty awesome. It's uh, it's very succinctly kind of shows you one how like ruthless and efficient the uh, um, section nine is, and I believe at, at the beginning there's actually a. It depends on which version of the film you watch. There's uh, in the subtitle or the Japanese track of the film, the uh, Bateau asks uh, the major Kusanagi, uh, you know, why there's so much static in her head. And she actually cracks a joke because she's a cyborg. She says, oh, well, it's, it's my time of the month. Uh, actually, but in the um, in the U.S. version or in the English version, uh, I, I can't remember the exact line, but it's not they don't even make a joke of it it's it's kind of funny because like in the manga motoko is actually very you know like she behaves young and all of this and she's you know kind of uh uh quirky and in the movie she doesn't she's almost deadly serious and doesn't have a sense of humor but in the few moments where she does have a sense of humor it seems like the dub was just like nah fuck that <laughs> Uh, so up next, we do have the iconic title sequence. Uh, we see Major Matoko being assembled. We then see Major Matoko wake up uh, as if to, you know, imply either she was having a dream about herself being born or, you know, uh, simply a memory. Uh, a few things to mention about the, the title sequence is, one, how... Uh, uh, omnipresent that imagery is now the digital rain, you know, uh, which uh, Matrix just took, just straight up, just like no, we're just gonna that whole shit. Yeah. That's just what we're gonna do. <laughs> uh, but um, also, um, Westworld also uses it. Um, it's it's pretty standard uh, imagery now, but I, I think before that, I, I don't think it was used much. The one thing is worth pointing out though is all of the um the birth imagery in it you know what i mean you see um you see matoko uh in in both the uh fetal position and you know emerging from all of this liquid and all of that so i don't know just something to keep in the back of your head uh i did i did have something to say about the intro sure yeah yeah, yeah let's hear it. i loved it and it you know it got me all pumped, and I was like not expecting it. Honestly, it just comes out of nowhere. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was like curious where it was going to go, but like, I almost think it set the bar like higher than I was expecting because I didn't know what was coming. And mm-hmm. I won't, I won't go into it till later, but like, I don't, I'm not saying it was a bad thing to put it like right there at the beginning, but like, it, uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll bring up what I mean by that later, but uh, I thought it was badass. I was yeah, sure. but uh, it, it it's very it's very GI Joe's kind of like yeah, yeah. It just kind of makes you think the movie's gonna go one direction, and it it kind of does. Yeah, it. not to mention that. Uh, sound go ahead. The opening scene, so yeah. awesome. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, shout out to uh, I'm sorry, what was his name again? Kenji Kawaii, because this is a banger of a soundtrack. Uh, I believe this is the title theme of the movie. It's probably the most frequently used bit of music. And I believe it uses what like ancient Japanese and uh, it, it, it seems like a very oldie, old-timey sounding thing, but it's meant to mix in the old with the new. So there's ancient Japanese, but there's also like European like uh, uh, harmonies and things like yeah, that. It's, it, it's pretty it, interesting. Like the opening scene was awesome, like the imagery, but the music really attracted me to it a lot. Sure, yeah. You're talking yeah. about like the chanting stuff, right? Yeah, yes. Oh, that was a really cool intro. Up next we have we introduce uh, Chief Aramaki, the uh, chief of Section 9, who greets a minister of foreign affairs whose name in the uh, the script is literally just Minister. So uh, he's arriving uh, via helicopter on the helipad on top of this massive building. Aramaki greets him, and here he asks about a secret meeting with a country referred to as the Republic of Gavel. The minister thanks Aramaki for taking care of the incident with the engineer trying to defect. Avoiding messy situations, uh, he says. Um, Aramaki then goes on to brief uh, Major Matoko on a situation where this minister's translator's cyber brain has been hacked by the puppet master, who is the big bad that we're introduced to here, presumably to assassinate key players in this upcoming meeting with said Republic of Gavin. This sets up a chase scene of sorts. Uh, So from here... uh, the Major and uh, Togusa and Bateau and Ishikawa, all of Section 9, are tasked with tracking down a hacker suspected of either being the Puppet Master or more likely being controlled by him. They quickly discover they're tracking a trash collector who uh, hilariously is just chatting about his crimes with a partner who just doesn't seem to give two <laughs> shits about the whole thing. It's just like basically sleeping on the job <laughs> meanwhile this guy's hacking into people's brains uh, <laughs> while picking up people's trash um they find out it's a trash collector because uh they're tracking the vehicle or they're tracking a signal they and then uh, uh bateau pulls up and he you know you just they're like ah oh, we missed him and then some guy's like oh god damn it uh I thought I saw the trash guy down here making a call. I figured I'd give him my trash, <laughs> and that, that tips them off. Like, oh shit, we're looking for a trash truck. Uh, funnily enough, uh, it's worth pointing out that the guy then tries to give the police his yeah. trash. Hey, can you guys take this? 
I don't know what they've got going on in Newport City, but uh, they they really need to fix this their whole scene here. Anyways, uh, they find out that it's a trash truck. Uh, they're, uh, the guy believes he's hacking into his wife's brain while going along the routes. During the chase, the garbage collector finds out that he's they're being chased, and he rushes off to warn the guy who taught him how to ghost hack in the first place. <laughs> that was the worst thing he could have done. Yeah, yeah, uh, because <laughs> he, he leads the police right to this guy who then proceeds to just indiscriminately open fire on everything with an Uzi. Uh, a fight also, ensues. He, he oh, go ahead. has the predator cloaking thing, too. Yeah, I was going to get to that. Uh. <laughs> Stole my line. Anyways, yeah, he has a totally awesome predator hoodie, uh, which uh, there's a chase scene. Uh, Bateau eventually finds him. No, no, it's Matoko. We eventually, we get a cool fight in the uh, in the city where uh, Matoko's uh, Nikki, but she's using her predator powers. She's invisible. She beats the guy up. Uh, they apprehend him. The guy says, I'm not talking to any cops, man. And Bateau hilariously uh, just asks him, uh, and just what are you going to talk about? You don't even know your own name, you stupid <laughs> dickhead. And which, at which point the guy has a very bewildered look on his face. A uh, pretty cool scene. Can I ask so, a Oh, go ahead. Does, does uh, Matoko get naked every time she, like, does any action-type physical shit? Uh, it, uh, in this, it seems, yeah. Uh, is that like I a... Actually, is that for, I kind of wonder like, why she even bothers wearing clothes. Yeah, so. yeah. It's just like a, in Trailer Park Boys, Randy takes off his shirt because he's more, like, aerodynamic or whatever to fight. Yeah, <laughs> there's a point. There's a point later on the movie that I actually do want to show uh, how dumb it kind of is. It's still a really awesome yeah, scene. It's I, no big deal. I read. Anyways, I read that. Oh, the, go ahead. She like doesn't have the human, you know, thoughts. So it's just like doesn't matter like to her the the body yeah. and stuff. She yeah she does she is certainly not ashamed of being naked yeah it's it's like nothing to it's very matter of fact to uh to one yeah. major also um, I think there's a major lack of Uzis nowadays in movies <laughs> yeah yeah I haven't yeah. seen I haven't one, seen in, one a long in a film time. in quite some time yeah I, I do gotta clarify Randy takes off his pants he's always shirtless though someone would have called me out on that <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> Sorry, sorry to get that wrong. <laughs> All right, so uh, managed to fit in a Trailer Park Boys reference in uh, the Ghost in the Shell episode. Way to go! <laughs> hey, we could take it farther in Bronson. She could grease herself up when she fights. So uh, the next scene, we see the chief getting caught up to speed by Bateau uh, via a call of some sort. Uh, where he goes on to say that the uh, both the ghost hackers' memories are fake. Uh, the the guy who they apprehended uh, thought he was just a badass uh, <laughs> a mercenary or what have you. It turns out he's a pretty petty criminal, uh, which just kind of shows you what the puppet master does, right? He doesn't take control of you exactly. What he does is instead completely rewrite your memory. Uh, pretty fucked up yeah so 
they go on to apprehend somebody else. And as they're moving in to apprehend this guy, you know, Aramaki says, this guy's just another puppet himself. So we know that the puppet master still remains at large. Back at headquarters, uh, in what is truly a heartbreaking scene, uh, we have one of the, seriously, one of the saddest scenes I've seen in a movie. Uh, the garbage collector is told that all of his memories are false. All the memories of his daughter, his little angel who he dotes over the picture of, uh, they aren't real. He was literally never married. Uh, and you see him like, he's like, no, 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 no. I told you the reason my apartment looks like that is I just moved in there because my wife and I are separated. And they're like, no, dude, you've had this apartment for years. Anyways, uh, the picture that he believed to be of his daughter is just him and his dog. Uh, it's pretty sad. The guy eventually just kind of realized, like, oh, my God. Oh, like, and he's told, you're never going to regain your memories. You know, this is just, you know, Cymex erasure. We don't have the, uh, the technology to really fix you up. As this is happening, Matoko and Bato are watching through uh, the, the looking glass. And uh, once again, we have a bit of a, a mix-up uh, with intent as far as the dub and the, the Japanese track are concerned. Uh, it, it, it seems more uh, on the nose in the Japanese version that Boto isn't speaking bluntly. I mean, he is, but he's, what he says actually is a good point. But Bato states that in the end, real memories, false memories, dreams, they're all just data. It doesn't really matter. They're all indiscernible. Whether you actually happened or whether, you know, it's an actual memory or just something you thought was real, doesn't matter. It's all just data, which he goes on to say, just another drop in the bucket rather coldly in the dub, which I think kind of makes it seem dismissive. Uh, from Bateau and the dub, which is not actually what he's his actual point. His point are is rather, what's the difference, man? Uh, like uh, so. Anyways, uh, also shout out to Bateau for probably being the most human character in the movie. Uh, really, like I mean, the movie deals with uh, Kusanagi, you know, kind of going through her uh, literal existential crisis, but uh, Bateau's real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I noticed he seemed more human, but he was also more comfortable with his, you know, being a cyborg. Uh, sure. Yeah. He accepted it, even though he seemed to have more human emotions than she did. But uh, yeah, that was neat. Yeah. I noticed that without realizing. They, they, they basically have, for the, the remainder of the movie, kind of a, a uh, philosophical uh discussion between the two of them which is Bateau seems to be very like matter of fact about everything he takes everything at face value right like yeah of course I used you know of course I've always been a human I just had these cybernetic enhancements you know yeah uh, anyways uh, where are we at we go on then to see a scene uh, of Matoko deep sea diving uh, which is interesting uh it, actually, I don't know if anybody caught this, but there's actually a callback to the beginning of the movie. Uh, whenever she's surfacing, you actually see her resurfacing. You know, you see the dueling reflections. She's meeting up with her reflection in the water. Yeah. Which is uh, um callback to the beginning of the movie where the exact same shot happens. Mm -hmm. uh, pretty, pretty cool. 
uh, here, uh, here she converses on her boat with uh, Bateau. Uh, they kind of, once again, they wax philosophical about uh, their cyborg bodies, her identif- identity crisis and feeling trapped. You know, he asks her why she's deep sea diving. Uh, she says, I feel fear cold alone. Sometimes when I'm down there, I even feel hope. When I float weightless back to the surface, I imagine I'm becoming someone else. It's worth noting. <laughs> Anyways, um, from there, they're, in, they're, we, they, they, they're interrupted here. Um, there's a voice uh, as they're talking. It um, says... It's, it speaks in Kusanagi's voice, but Kusanagi's mouth doesn't move. And she seems very perplexed by this. And what we hear is, what we see now is like a dim image, image in a mirror. Then we shall meet face to face. It's actually a Bible quote, but uh, we'll figure that out later. Up next, we have a scene I actually didn't really think much about, but uh, it's a montage, essentially, of the city and Matoko uh, traveling through it. It's it's pretty cool, but uh, I I hadn't really put a whole lot of thought into it as to like what's going on here until I actually watched it this time, and uh, you see it, it's very surreal. Uh, but you see, uh, Matoko sees at one point uh, somebody either she believes she sees a mirror version of herself, or she actually sees it, and there's just someone else running around in the exact same body that Matoko has. She seems kind of alarmed about it. Anyways, uh, the only other thing to say from my perspective about this uh, montage, apart from the fact that it, it back to that same badass music, is the closing shot of the montage is mannequins, uh, which is kind of important. So yeah, any uh, any thoughts on what we <laughs> what we've digested so far here? Before I get because uh, we're about to dive pretty much straight into the uh, well, yeah, pretty much the climax of the film here on out. But um, I, it was it was weird to me like that whole scene on the boat. Uh, I wanted to kind of talk about a little bit where. You see Bateau and you see Kusanagi and they both kind of talk about their identity and what have yeah. you. And Bateau seems to be very, like, matter-of-fact once again about it. He's very like, yeah, okay. And Matoko, who, you know, who always argues that, like, her body is completely cybernetic, right? She doesn't have any original parts of the human being she once was, you know, in her at, at this point so you know she starts to be like am I even a human being or whatever Bateau seems to be like oh, yeah of course you're a human being whatever you know uh. yeah I thought that was a really cool scene uh, I, I, well I should say in real time watching it I was a little bored by it I could kind of tell it was important you know and, and by yeah. the end rolls around you're like oh shit that was a pretty pivotal scene in you mm-hmm. know getting getting the way they both think differently, but uh, it, it comes to play at the end in that, in that climax. Yeah. Uh, they even foreshadow it with the puppet master, but uh, I don't know. That was a really cool connection that I would have otherwise been a lot of exposition going on in this movie. Yeah. It's, 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 it's very exposition heavy, but it doesn't really take like, this is the closest thing to a lull in the movie 
and it's not even 15 minutes after we saw a badass action sequence. So yeah, it's a very brisk 82. It minutes. shows a lot about um, just that short scene shows a lot about um, Bateau's character too a little bit. Like so, when she gets out of the water, he you know he kind of covers her up. Um, mm-hmm. and she, yeah. Like, undresses and he looks away like he sees right, her yeah. completely different than what she sees herself in a sense like mm-hmm. i guess he's about the whole human aspect of life <laughs> yeah 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 he's still got the he's still got the human side of uh sexuality let's take a short break All right, so we're back, and um, we're going to talk about the climax of the movie now. It's going to be great. Okay, so like I said, whenever we finish up with a montage, it ends with a shot of a mannequin. It's pretty on point. Right after that, we see a naked body standing in the middle of a highway during, you know, during a rainstorm. And we see it hit by a truck. (laughs) (laughs) Cut to uh, Matoko riding, arriving at headquarters where this body is being investigated. She's told somehow, miraculously, there's a ghost present uh, in the cyber brain of this body that was previously lifeless. It was a body made for somebody, but nobody was in there yet. Matoko is dead set on being the first person to dive into this cyber brain because she's been having a bit of a time with this puppet master uh, uh, case here. As they leave, they're passed by a guy who we know to now be Nakamura, the head of Section 6, and the guy uh, who, at the beginning of the movie, tried to apprehend the, um, the engineer, uh, which I guess he did successfully after, you know, a diplomat was shot in the head by Matoko. He's, is, uh, uh, is that guy the guy with the crazy uh, fingers? The fingers, yeah. Does yeah, the typing? What about him? I was just curious. That scene was funny to me. Like, um, it just kind of uh, pointed out, like, weird things of people's... Uh, like views of the future mm-hmm. thinking like, okay, they, they fucking use basically virtual reality almost to, to get into the, the bodies of other, you know, the, the thing like the puppet master was doing. And I think one of the, the hackers that works for section nine, I believe uses it to find, find out things about the puppet master. Oh, so there's yeah. all this futuristic shit going on. His fucking fingers split into like five fingers each to type. And I'm like, why is he typing? 
Can't you do this shit telepathically like everyone else? Like, it was just weird. I mean, the finger shit was cool. Yeah. Use it to do something else. So I don't know. It was just kind of weird. Uh, a shout out to uh, 90s anime sound effects because a ping, ping sound effect whenever he does that, pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, he's an unidentified American, which uh, we learn about here in a bit. Um, while in the elevator, Matoko presents her thesis uh, that even if the brain never belonged to a real human, the very fact that it has a ghost in it makes it every bit as alive as anything else, which is an argument we'll hear again very soon. <laughs> Section 6 then goes on to stake their claim to the body. Uh in, in the Section 9 headquarters. Like, hey, Zars. <laughs> Tokusa uses some pretty slick um, old-school detective work to determine that, along with Nakamura and the American, there are unidentified cyborgs with them using some thermo-optic uh, cameras. He's, he realizes, like, oh, we've got a couple of predators in here. Like, the predator camouflage, not predators, predators. Although, who knows? Man, that'd be a crossover. <laughs> um, he goes on to alert uh, Bato and Matoko and he tells them like hey uh, isn't it a crime for them to secretly have you know people like hidden like uh, in our federal building or whatever like yep so anyways uh, you know they kind of uh, they keep it on the down low uh, we see Chief Armaki demand section 6 share any information they may have on the case they assume he'll do the same Nakamura then uh, identifies the body as one being possessed by the puppet master. He then goes on to talk about how they had this whole elaborate scheme cooked up where they were going, where they basically lured the puppet master into that body and then they killed, you know, they allege they killed his original body. The voice immediately uh, speaks up from this new body and it's a very creepy voice and it says, uh, there was no body. I've never had a body. So we then learn, like, oh, so this is the puppet master talking. Uh, So he claims to be born in the Sea of Information and the Demands Political Asylum from Section 9. Uh, Much like the argument Motoko just made, it argues that man is only human thanks to his memory, therefore making it every bit as as alive in an age where everything's digital data anyways, be it memories or what have you. Says his name is Project 2501. The conversation is then abruptly interrupted by an attack, an explosion. Bang happens in the background. And in the confusion, basically, the body is abducted. Men in stealth camo can be seen repelling from an exploded, a hole they just blew in the building. Uh, Togusa briefly gives chase. And with his very outdated revolver that everybody in Section 9 gives him shit for, he uses it to put a tracking dart in the license plate of the getaway vehicle. <laughs> so, yeah, everybody stopped taking shit on Togus's gun because it came in handy. Yeah, I like what Actually, but still, Yeah, he still talks shit on, on his gun afterwards. Like, oh, if you had an automatic, you could have put, like, 18 tracking devices. Uh, also there's a we see another trash truck uh, make an appearance completely not worth noting I just I used to anytime somebody honked at me the line that the guy uses in the trash truck in that scene is you blow that horn out your ass but I (laughs) it's 
now is legit what I say to anybody who honks at me, <laughs> like in traffic, if my window's down. Sounds like Larry David. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, basically, uh, after that, he plants a tracking device on a car as they flee. Nakamura and the American leave. Like, okay, well, you know, uh, sorry, everybody. Uh, we work with uh, whoever made this body anyways. Whoever had their body damaged will pay for a new one. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're out. Uh, uh, Matoko and Bato and Togusa now go on to give chase. Matoko loads up in a helicopter. Bato chases the car that has a tracking device in it. I don't really know what Togus is doing, but he does show up again. Uh, <laughs> they all take off after these uh, these bad guys who stole their fucking body. Uh <clears throat> Bateau then goes on to see... Oh, wait. Nope. Nope. I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. Ishikawa, as they take off, he's hacking in the uh, the contraption that uh, Troth points out, which is really cool. It's a really cool-looking, like, like, almost like a diver suit or something. Uh, it's weird. Uh, yeah, that was cool. And bulky. But he's hacking into the Ministry of Foreign Affairs... Uh, where he discovers the American is a guy named Dr. Willis, head of strategic research at the Neutron Company. He heads up a mysterious Project 2501 over head engineer Daita, who we see at the beginning of the movie trying to get out of Japan and get diplomatic immunity to another country. Uh, I believe the Ministry of Gavel. Anyways, uh, we then... Uh, Ishikawa passes uh, doubt on both the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Session 6. It's like, these guys are clearly up to something. Yeah, that so, scene was uh, so well done. It was so intense when yeah. he was doing that. You felt the uh, the stakes. Sure. He almost seemed like nervous, like, like uh, almost like they were in over their heads, you know? I don't know. It just seemed really, really awesome, like how they did that scene with uh, Ishikawa. Yeah, yeah, it's actually a pretty cool scene. Uh, I wanted more Ishikawa in this movie. Uh, I mean, yeah, I want to follow this guy some more. Like he just he seems... okay. So we then go on to uh, Bateau, who's been tailing uh, in his car. He sees the uh, suspects pull up to another vehicle, and here they basically split up into two vehicles. Uh, they don't know which one has the body or what have you, so because uh, they have a dummy in the other one. Anyways, uh, Matoko says she's got a whisper in her ghost. She follows uh, one of the cars. Bateau pursues the other target. Bateau <laughs> ruthlessly murders uh, his targets at a roadblock, uh, which is just genuinely disgusting. Mean, it's actually pretty gross. Uh, <laughs> you see a guy basically get exploded. It's like the liquefaction. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And meanwhile, Matoko and the helicopter pursues the other vehicle, and they stop in a weird building that doesn't seem to make much sense. It looks like a mix between a museum, a shopping mall, and a church. It's bizarre. But the future. It's cool. Yeah, I kind of got confused by that because I was like, wait, where are they? Where'd they go? How long were they driving? The right. Future. Yeah. Kind of. It is. Not <laughs> that, like the the one thing you're supposed to kind of take away from this is like most of the movie takes place in like a derelict part of the city. You see, um, 
there's like a fancy part of the city, the very like futuristic science fiction-y looking city that you see past the uh, the pier, right? Um, where you see uh, Matoko fighting um, the the first guy, the first dude who got his head, you know, hijacked by the puppet master or whatever. Uh, but this part of the city is actually very derelict and run down. And it's kind of cool. Uh, anyways, uh, it's a bizarre building, uh, but there are a few things to note. There's like a great deal of like religious imagery. There's, you see a dinosaur, uh, uh, you see a dinosaur, uh, a fossil and you see, uh, what is the tree of life? Uh, you know, which is, a. a image used in a lot of mysticism primarily uh jewish mysticism so anyways uh it's worth noting here um well well hang on clay you've seen uh, righteous gemstones right on hbo i have yes so why can't church and the shopping mall be hand in hand <laughs> you know, i mean right. really it's a thing so that, that answer is where they were at church and a shopping mall <laughs> yeah. uh, now i've got uh random bits of uh of that show just stuck in my head great i've got to focus god damn it um <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyways um we see a pretty cool action sequence here Matoko repels into the building quickly sees a car parked under a camouflage predator big ass tank with four legs uh she tells the, the helicopter pilot to fuck off. It's like, all right, man, this is going to be pretty intense. Uh, get out of here. But before you leave, uh, shoot out the ceiling. Uh, and he does. And the, the, you know, the glass falling reveals a pretty awesome looking uh, tank mech thing that uh, Toko now has to do battle with. Uh, <laughs> here we see her basically, by the way, okay, so there's a thing to talk about here, but we'll, we'll get to it. Uh, Trapper pulls out, but before he pulls out, he says there's some more inbound. There's some more helicopters coming, and uh, you know, they're heading for this way, they're headed for you. <laughs> uh, anyways, we see this battle take place where she's basically in a little gunfight with this massive tank, and she's communicating with Bateau over you know their telecommunications, I guess. And she's like, he's like, what do you have? And she tells him, you know, I've got like a machine gun. He's like, that's going to do nothing to a tank. So anyways, he peels out like he's going to go save the day somehow. And boy, does he. <laughs> uh, anyways, some inbound uh, helicopters. We see uh, Matoko after eventually, finally, this tank allegedly runs out of ammo. She then decides to take her clothes off and you know put on some predator uh, stealth, which I thought was weird. So kind yeah. of feels like it would be useful before that. <laughs> so I don't know, I don't really know. But anyways, it doesn't really matter. Uh, more TNA and more. Uh, this the scene coming up is actually really intense. You see Matoko basically show no regards for her body at all. Right, and she basically ruins her body trying to tear open a cockpit to this tank after she takes care of the uh, the people in the car. They're dead, so it doesn't fucking matter. She then goes on to the uh, the tank, jumps onto the top of it, tries to pull it off. She clearly is not strong enough to pull 
this thing off of the tank. But she tries anyways, and in the process, uh, she loses an arm and a leg. She just kind of falls limp and lifeless to the ground uh, where the tank picks her up and almost crushes her head. She's saved by Bateau uh, coming to the rescue with the biggest goddamn gun uh, this side of a mecha anime. You know, uh, <laughs> this side of Gundam, you don't see guns this big in anything. So <laughs> it's pretty yeah. awesome. Anyways, uh, she blows the shit out of the tank. Uh, Matoko uh, asks, like, what did you use? And he just, he just says, uh, oh, yeah, your, your standard issue big gun. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was funny because um, he's like, okay, I'm headed there. So he had to run somewhere and pick up the gun yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. go to yeah. wherever the mall or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Museum mall, church. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, he uh yeah, he saves the day. Kind of a Deus Ex Machina, but it's really cool. So we'll go with it. Yeah. Uh basically, uh Motoko then says, Hey, I need help hacking into this body. Uh so they set it up. And, and, and the one thing that's really cool about this shot is they're set up uh on top of this tank. And it's parked right under uh, this tree of life, right? So it's, you know, kind of symbolic here. Uh, anyways, they set the two bodies next to each other. They communicate, you know, through Matoko hacking and him hack. So basically, they're both hacking into each other. He hacks her. She hacks him. He's talking through her. She's talking through him. It's pretty cool. Anyways, they have a kind of a, a philosophical uh, debate here. But basically, uh, 2501, basically, or the Puppet Master, if you want to call him that, uh, he tells Matoko he was created as a political espionage and response program to benefit what he calls her. They have this, this talk where he basically says, I was created to be a political espionage and response program to benefit certain parties of political interest. Become self-aware and he sought out specifically Matoko in Section 9. Um, he then proposes that he and Matoko merge, create a new offspring, and uh, create a new, more powerful being. Matoko is not, she's not saying no. She's like, all right, I'm going to need some assurances. <laughs> no. uh, because she, while she doesn't seem to give a shit about her body or even anything physical about her, she gives a, she gives a lot of fucks about her personality, who she is, her individuality. Her ghost. Her ghost, yeah. Uh, the 2501 basically says, like, you're letting this one thing drag you down. This is what's holding you back. So he says, you know, uh, no, we should, we should totally merge. It'll be fine. <laughs> basically. Uh, so they do. Um, well, we don't know that, actually. Um, because... As was said before, these three helicopters finally show up. They arrive. They've got some badass sniper units and these cool-looking helicopters, and they're ready to blow the shit out of everything down there to cover their tracks, basically. Uh, what happens is here, uh, we don't know what's going, what actually happens, but the, the bodies are destroyed. And the one thing I kind of wanted to point out here is, well, Matoko's head's not destroyed. Uh, we don't know whether or not they've chosen to merge, right? We, we don't know what all has gone down. Uh, the Section 6 helicopters 
certainly hope they've covered their tracks and destroyed both bodies. Uh, but Bateau uses his arm to shield uh, shield Matoko's head. Uh, loses his arm for the trouble there. But uh, right before the uh, their their bodies are destroyed, we see what looks like uh, an angel and uh, angel feathers um, drop down, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, what uh, was that? Yeah, it, you don't yeah, really know. Never it's, explain. It, it does not bother to. It kind of leaves it up to your interpretation. I have thoughts on this. All right, all right. We're getting through this goddamn recap, y'all. <laughs> almost there. We're almost there. Jeez. We basically, we don't know what happened, right? We just see Bateau missing an arm run over to Matoko's head. Uh, you can see Matoko's still conscious for a little bit. And then she says, Bateau, and then it shuts down. Uh, the very next shot, we see something come back on, right? And it's Matoko's head on a doll-ish, like a childlike body. And you see Matoko kind of staring. Um, you, you don't know why, because it, this looks like it's in first person. This is actually a pretty cool thing. It, and it kind of lends to the surreal nature of the whole movie. From first person, right? You see the static and everything. It's clearly like a cyborg's eyes are looking through so it's looking her looking at a reflection, which is like the fourth or fifth time, you know, we've seen her look at her own reflection. And every time you kind of want to go back to her talking about becoming someone else whenever she 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 imagines she's becoming somewhere else when she emerges from the waters, you know, and collides with her own reflection. Anyways, turns out she's looking in a mirror at what is her new body and her head on a new body. Uh, she wakes up. She speaks to Bateau, who um, basically uh, says, hey, you're in my safe house. Uh, He tells her the incident ends basically as a draw between Section 9 and Section 6 and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, Basically what happens is right after that, they're saved in in the nick of time by Section 9 helicopters that swoop in, chase off the bad guy helicopters. They retrieve everybody. Yada yada. Basically, uh, they consider the uh, the puppet master Project Twenty Five Hundred One to be no more. Right, it's eliminated. So all's well that ends well to their mind. Uh, Matoko tells Bateau uh, she's no longer the woman he knows as Matoko, nor is she the entity known as the puppet master, but something new. She then says goodbye. Uh, she walks out. Take this car. I put. I change the code to the car to number uh, twenty five zero one. Then they say, "Okay, so we'll just use that as our secret code the next time we want to meet up." Anyways, um, we see Matoko walk out, and she's overlooking the city now. And she says, uh, "She wonders aloud to herself, uh, where does the newborn go from here?'" And at that point, the movie ends. Pretty cool. <laughs> that was a recap, y'all. Uh, so, uh, thoughts on the climax of the film before we start getting into our uh, our uh, overall thoughts on the movie? Um, I was into it. It's definitely pretty action-packed. I mean, it <clears throat> it takes away from, you know, I think if somebody was watching, it'd be like, oh, this is a cool anime. Like, I think just with the climax you'd be like no this was a cool sci-fi action movie because it's it's intense i mean like you know when she's like torn apart and everything Mm -hmm. it's yeah it's pretty wild yep pretty pretty strong finish 
uh, yeah, basically. So I, I guess though the one thing I, I kind of I kind of wanted to point out was like the the reflection motif they use a lot in the movie. Uh, so I always thought that was interesting. It's something I, I hadn't noticed before uh, watching it this time, which was like the five millionth time I've watched it. Uh, anyways, I guess uh, I guess we'll go ahead and uh, wait. Trot, didn't you say you wanted to chop something up to, at the end of the movie here? Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember what I was talking. About. <laughs> um. Oh, the action. Yeah. I was, uh, the intro, like, uh, kind of what Patrick was saying, that it's like a action sandwich, like, the beginning yeah. and the end are so ridiculously full of, like, super tense action, and I just felt like the middle, like, maybe needed, like, one more of those in there to keep you, like, not interested, I wasn't disinterested, but I wanted more of that shit from the beginning. And the end gives it to you, but like that was just felt like a lot of exposition to get to that ending. But I don't know. I'm not complaining. Like I'm not. I don't know. I, I'm still trying to get used to like how you're supposed to watch anime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's a lot to take in. It's weird. You watch it like you watch anything else. You don't watch it in the same uh, headspace as like a just a, a movie. You know. Sure. Yeah. I don't know. That's why they have to feel like they're going to tell you a lot, like instead of show you. I don't know. Mm. But see, that's weird because in, in his bio, he says character is like the third thing of importance. Yeah. Him. But I feel like he spends so much time fleshing them out through conversation. So I don't know if I buy that. Like, I feel like he's very character motivated. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, I, I will say that, uh, and it is kind of true of a lot of Japanese filmmakers and animators. They they do seem to be more interested in getting across a philosophy than they do actually like you know what I mean, like having a coherent plot. And in, in, in some points, you know what I mean. So like, whether or not the character is a believable character is secondary to does that character serve a purpose in this story to uh, to get a get across their yeah uh, but yeah I, I i could totally see that it it, it certainly it it starts off like oh shit there's gonna be a lot of action and then sure enough yeah. you've got you've got a, a city montage and you've got yeah, uh, yeah that was got, really uh, long yeah it's very long it's it's got a kind of a saggy it doesn't sag like i said the whole thing's only 82 minutes yeah it was it felt very quick i did write that yeah now. but uh, but yeah, yeah, totally. So I guess, uh, yeah, I guess we'll just move into uh, everybody's final thoughts on the movie. Um, if anybody's got anything to add, well, how did you feel? Like, what did like, what did you think? Um, I, you know, again, I had seen it before, uh, probably teenager, maybe preteen. Uh, obviously, it went over my head. I just thought it was a cool anime, um, but you know, getting to watch it again is a good refresher because I feel like I took a lot of it for granted. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it still holds up easily. Um, And I think it obviously laid a lot of groundwork for not only the matrix, but you know, I think along with like Akira, it opened up a lot of people's eyes that it doesn't have to be, you know, real people. It can be this thought out animated movie that has a lot of heart to it. And I think it's, I think it's awesome. All right. Easy E. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I had to go through it a couple times just to <laughs> kind of try to understand it. Uh, or catch, I don't know, catch what I didn't see the first time. Whatever. But it's a really kind it of is, it melancholy is. movie to me. Sure, like absolutely. it's just kind of because she and it may it may be, I mean, there's some pretty you know really awesome like action um, parts to the movie, but mm-hmm. there's like and I think due to like Matoko being kind of confused, you know, I I guess confused, I, maybe not confused, but I don't know, it kind of it kind of left me a little confused as well, like yeah, <laughs> about like yeah, it's disorienting, yeah, different sure. disorienting. <laughs> But I enjoyed it. I, I, it went by like you said earlier. There's this that one little kind of lull in the movie, but mm-hmm. the rest is pretty awesome, like to me. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, I think. Oh, oh, sorry, were you done? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, I think with me is like following this up, uh, or following up Akira with this, with Akira being like just an absolute classic and and living up to everything i thought and more and they had it had Mm. that action but with substance sprinkled throughout it was a good blend whereas this i just thought was not i don't know just i'm just speaking for my personal taste like ghost michelle has i mean my my expectations that get set up by the beginning don't make or break the film so like no one should give a shit if I thought the middle got a little boring, but uh, I don't know. I just, I just would say I wish there was more action and less less exposition and dialogue, just for me to enjoy it, my selfish needs in watching a film. But uh, a lot of the one thing I was fascinated by being someone that you know thinks about cyborgs taking over in the future. Uh, is <laughs> I thought it was neat how it, it was. The main theme was like identity, and uh, it got into the. I had to look. I had to look this up. I'm not this smart, but Cartesian dualism. Do you guys know what that is? No yes. idea, but uh, it's the belief where the body is actually separate from the mind and spirit, or soul if you're spiritual. Um, and then like evolution, obviously the ending dipped into that. But those are the three themes that I kind of saw mentioned when people were analyzing the movie. But that's where it gets into like the puppet master like being curious about what makes a human being you know stop being a human or or what makes a, yeah. what makes a cyborg human and they he talks about it confused me because he was like questioning i think it was in the in the finale or climate yeah. he's talking about um re- reproducing and i was like well yeah humans reproduce but that's not something that makes a human a human because every animal reproduces you know so i was like that's yeah. not really a human trait so i thought it was weird but they chose to use that versus like uh I don't know. well what i believe i believe what the puppet master's point was was that he wanted to uh wanted to m- ensure that you know it it continued after you know 2501 because like I, I think it was like, yeah, my, my time's pretty limited here. I'm being sought out by all these different uh, uh, entities here. So basically the idea, and he even mentions it, like in evolution, you know, uh, everybody, you know, basically like, you know, staying still is a weakness, basically. So like, you know, we pass on genetic memory to our kids and that's how evolutionary uh, evolution works. You know, so uh, 
so basically, yeah, he's just saying like, this is how I continue. You know, I basically he wants to pass on his genes, which aren't real genes, but wants to pass this on to something else, to something bigger than himself, yeah. basically. Uh, which I, I think is kind of what he deposits or what, you know, Project 2501 rather deposits as like the meaning of life, right? Is building something bigger. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, as far as uh, my impression of the movie goes, uh, I, I I certainly think it's one of the... Uh, it, it, to me, it sits in the science fiction pantheon, you know, uh, along with Akira as like these kind of groundbreaking it's certainly groundbreaking in terms of animation but like it honestly does deserve you know um deserves kudos for just what it does as a film in general um the uh there's a quote here uh i wanted to read in the episode it's uh this is kind of a review of the film this is the first truly adult animation film to reach a level of literary and visual excellence this was on the cover of the VHS copy of <laughs> Ghost in the Shell I had, you know, sitting on my shelf for years and years. Uh, and that's from one James Carpenter who knows a thing or two about sci-fi movies. So I always thought that was pretty cool. Uh, the movie uh, actually debuted uh, as the first anime to reach Billboard's number one video slot upon its release. Didn't even know there were Billboard video slots, but, you know... Certainly, another bit of trivia worth uh, worth mentioning. Anybody got anything else here they want to add, uh, trivia wise, or just thoughts on the film in general before we uh, before we kick it to um, find out what we're going to do next? I would say the only thing I saw that was pretty neat that we hadn't talked about yet, as far as trivia, um, supposedly the reason why some parts of the city are flooded out. Uh, is due to the seldom mentioned typhoon that occurred at the same time of the events to the anime movie. So I thought that was kind of kind of a neat little thing. That is pretty cool. Yeah, it's a a good movie. Uh, With the background, the detail. Yeah, I I wrote down how the animation was cool because the background was almost like photorealistically drawn. But then you had your characters that were traditional anime looking characters that was almost like a different style, almost like it could be two different artists, but it went together really well. It made the characters stand yeah, out yeah. really, really well. And then uh, uh, Patrick kind of hinted at it, how it inspired more than just the Matrix. And I wrote down the Ex Machina film, the ending mm-hmm. is very similar to me. And it had that just suspenseful what what's next moment, you know? Yeah, yeah, actually, almost an identical ending as far as like emotional beats, you know what I mean. Uh, and then there's the Cronenberg film Existence. That's pretty yeah. similar concept as far as you know, plugging in and and getting you know, uh, almost like becoming a ghost in a video game in that regard. But this one almost felt like like scenes from a badass video in a weird way, like that whole ending felt like a fucking boss fight from a video game like you have that tension and you're like fucking nervous and squeezing the controller and that's how i felt for the characters so i was just like i don't know maybe because it's like animated and that makes me think in that sense but but it was a it's not a bad thing i just thought it was neat yeah yeah like um so like clay mentioned earlier like 
the Westworld TV series opening is almost, you know, it's almost exactly the same intro as Ghost in the Shell. Like, that's what I thought. Because I actually saw the Westworld intro before I've watched this. And I was like, wait, wait a minute. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I did read about um, <laughs> something that stood out to me. Uh, the director, I guess, like, he looked like always puts basset hounds and stuff yeah <laughs> because he yeah. owns a couple in real life so yeah i gotta give my respects to that because uh, <laughs> yeah dogs <laughs> yeah that's about all i've read all right well i guess at that point then i'm gonna hand it i, I believe uh it's easy E's turn to pick the next week's movie that we're gonna watch uh i wait with uh, anticipation. I, I think uh, I, I think your hint gave me a clue of what it might be. Eric <laughs> Eric gave me a clue about something we used to watch a lot together, and you said something about happy, hinting towards happy. So I won't say it, but I'll tell you if I was right. So go ahead, Eric. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, yeah. So um, no, it's deep. This is going to be. So deep and like serious. <laughs> you guys, you got to get mentally prepared. I'm ready. But they say, uh, it's from 1993. It was produced by uh, Roger Corman and Mike Elliott, directed by Adam Simon. The movie we're going to watch is Carnosaur. Oh, shit. <laughs> All right. That's not what I thought. <laughs> That's Dude, not happy. Man. That's a gory fucking movie, man. <laughs> I thought you were going to pull out fucking Mac and me, man. Dude, I should have. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, this uh, this streaming anywhere that we should alert people to? Uh, you can find on YouTube. Okay. For free. Yeah. Well, here's, here's a little fun fact about Eric and I and some other friends when we, we were growing up. We watched Mac and me, and anyone who's seen that movie knows the parents communicate with this weird fucking whistle that they do <laughs> and if we would get separated in like a store when we were like roommates back in the day buying ramen noodles and soda we would do that fucking sound and like find each other so that movie, <laughs> that movie was useful for uh communication before cell phone oh yeah okay sorry well i'm excited i haven't seen car for in like 20 years yeah i do that yeah it's gonna it's so yeah, you guys are gonna love it if you haven't seen it. I remember it. Being all right, I'm excited. All right, well, all right, I'll see you guys then. Uh, this is Clay checking off, so yeah. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Bye. <laughs>